This is the Uncommon Wisdom Podcast, a podcast companion to the Substack newsletter, Uncommon Wisdom, that helps listeners uncover unusual wisdom through conversations and interviews with some of the most interesting people around. Please like, share, and subscribe. It's free with new content every week. Enjoy the show. I am joined today by Professor Eric Schwitzgabel. Eric teaches philosophy at the University of California, Riverside, and he is the author of the recently released book, The Theory of Jerks and Other Philosophical Misadventures. Eric, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jimmy. All right, so I wanted to get started by talking about your origin story. I like to ask most guests uh, how you got where you are today. So out of curiosity, how did you become a professional philosopher? It's a very unusual vocation. It is. So my father was a psychology professor at California Lutheran University when I was growing up. And my mom was a community college teacher at Oxnard Community College. And I remember I was a very kind of intellectual scholarly kid. I remember looking at their professions and their lives and thinking, I want to do that. I think that's what I want to do. <laughs> and then I uh, went to Stanford as an undergraduate. And my plan was just take whatever classes interested me and pay kind of no attention to majors or requirements or anything like that. My thought was, well, I know I want to be a professor of something, but I don't know what. So I'll just take whatever interests me, follow my, you know, whatever seems exciting at the moment. And then uh, by the time of my senior year, I realized I'd taken more philosophy classes than anything else. So I hurried up and, and completed the major. And then I uh, went to Berkeley to, to get my PhD there. So that's the path I took. Uh, just real quick, why uh, philosophy of mind, psychology, moral psychology, that, that kind of stuff? Right. So as an undergrad, the issues that interested me most were radical skepticism and philosophy of science. And when I went to Berkeley... Well, Paul Feyerabend had just, I just missed him by one year, <laughs> uh, but he had been there and he was one of my favorite philosophers of science because he was also pretty uh, uh, skeptical. Um, and uh, Barry Stroud was there who did uh, study history of skepticism and that sort of thing. Uh, and then when I got there, uh, I found that I didn't connect so well with uh, Stroud, but uh, I loved Lisa Lloyd, it was great. She's a philosopher of biology, was there at the time. Um, and so I decided I want to be a philosopher of science. So I went and thought about, okay, what science do I want to do? And she did philosophy of evolutionary biology. So, you know, I started learning some evolutionary biology. It didn't really light my candle. Um, and then I'm not sure why, but I ended up uh, auditing a summer class by Yuri Gergley who at the time was uh, just this uh, visiting associate professor teaching summer classes at Berkeley, not particularly prominent. He's since become one of the world's most uh, well-known developmental psychologists. But at the time, it was just this kind of random thing. So on a whim, I had gone to this class thinking, well, maybe this would be interesting. And it was so amazing. On the very first day, he's like, all right, so a baby is born. How does it tell where its body ends and where the crib begins? How does it tell like what's a person and what's a thing? Uh, as the baby gets older, how does it come to understand, you know, that actions have effects in the world, that objects continue to exist even when they're not being perceived anymore? 
right? All of these like really philosophical, fascinating questions that he just opened up. Uh, and I thought, wow, at this time, at the time, almost nobody uh, in professional philosophy had been doing kind of empirically oriented developmental psychology. So I thought there was a real gold mine there. Uh, and I wanted to do, I decided that I wanted to do philosophy of developmental psychology, find these philosophical issues in developmental psychology that philosophers hadn't thought about or appreciated very much, uh, and bring them into philosophy and find the philosophical connections. And then I was super lucky because, uh, Gergley left because he was just there for the summer, but Alison Gopnik, who was a super philosophically oriented, uh, developmental psychologist was there. So I asked permission to join her lab. So then for the next three years, I was basically a philosopher in Alison Gopnik's developmental psychology laboratory. And my dissertation was a variety of, I thought, kind of cool issues at the intersection of philosophy of science, developmental psychology. And then, of course, that brought me into philosophy of mind because you know, philosophy of mind is super relevant to developmental psychology. So in your book, your latest book, A Theory of Jerks, you write, quote, Ethicists do not appear to behave better. Never once have we found ethicists as a whole behaving better than our comparison groups of other professors by any of our main planned measures. But neither overall do they seem to behave worse. For the most part, ethicists behave no differently from other sorts of professors, logicians, biologists, historians, foreign language instructors, end quote. Now, here's my question. Should this... Um, should this puzzle us or make us worry that ethicists, in other words, people who study right and wrong, don't really behave better than their professor counterparts? And should that make us worry that maybe there's a very weak connection between moral thought and moral behavior? Yes, I think it should make us worry. Um, you know, I think there's a kind of easy cynicism that you could slip into, which is, you know, well, of course, all ethical reasoning is just, you know, post hoc justification of what you wanted to do anyway. And it's all just BS. I mean, I think you could say that. And some people have that instinct. I don't have that instinct. I think to me, it seems like, well, you engage in philosophical ethical reasoning and ethicists do this as much as anybody and as well as anybody. And it's not all irrelevant stuff. Like, you know, weird thought experiments about runaway trolleys, you know, ethicists think about stuff like, you know, whether you should give to charity and whether you should be a vegetarian and all kinds of, you know, things about their personal lives. I think ethicists do think about that stuff a lot. Um, some of course, more than others. And I think if you think about these things, shouldn't it have some influence on your behavior? How could it not really? So, but I had felt, like from my own experience, like ethicists, we're just normal professor nerdy types, you know, uh, not particularly different, not particularly affected in their personal lives by their ethical choices. Some seem like, you know, wonderful, amazing people. Others seem kind of like yucky people. And just why is there no, it seemed to me like no connection between the philosophical reflection, or at least not a big connection and the behavior. So yeah, so uh, mostly with Joshua Rust, uh, we did this long series of empirical experiments trying to see if ethicists behave differently than other professors. And basically, it's just like null result after null result. I mean, we get a few, you know, side results that go one way or another, but, you know, really very consistently. It's null result after null result. Ethicists don't behave differently. The most striking one to me is vegetarianism. And I think thinking about this case can kind of help motivate the puzzle a little bit more, right? So, 
what we found was that ethicists were more likely, substantially more likely than other professors to say that it's morally bad to eat meat. So this is a questionnaire that Josh Preston and I sent out in, when was it? <laughs> 2009 to uh, a bunch of ethicists, non-ethicist philosophers and professors from other departments in the same universities. We got good response rates, like 60% response rates from this, from this questionnaire. Um, and we asked a variety of moral questions and then we asked them to self-report their own behavior on those same issues. And one of the questions was uh, to ask them to rate on a scale from very morally bad to very morally good, uh, regularly eating the meat of mammals, such as beef or pork. And um, we found ethicists were much more likely to say it was bad. I think it was, what was it, 40, 60, 60 percent of them, the majority, said it was bad. 45% of the non-ethicist philosophers did, and I think it was only 19% of the non-philosophers did. But then later when we asked, did you eat the meat of a mammal at your previous evening meal, not including snacks, there we found no statistically detectable difference among the groups. You know, of course, there might have been a small difference that we couldn't detect statistically. We had about 200 participants per group. If there was any difference, it was small. So this huge difference in moral opinion from 60% to 19%. And no, basically no, not much of a difference in their actual self-reported behavior. So, so we can imagine in this context, we can imagine what I call the cheeseburger ethicist thought experiment. So imagine this ethicist, call him Max. I chose this name randomly from a list of students. I now choose the names in my examples randomly from former undergrads, which I think helps me avoid bias and unconscious, you know, like matching names to, you know, bad guys and good guys and stuff, right? So Max teaches a class on vegetarianism. He teaches Peter Singer's arguments, James Rachel's arguments. He says, hey, look, this is morally convincing. You know, these arguments seem sound. It's morally bad to eat meat. And his students press him in various ways. He answers their objections. And then he goes to the cafeteria and gets a cheeseburger. And then a student comes up and says, hey, <laughs> did you just say it's morally bad to eat meat? And Max says, well, yeah, I mean, it's actually true. I discovered, you know, Peter Singer and I discovered that it's morally bad to eat meat. And, um, right, so the student comes up to Max in the cafeteria and says, hey, I just thought that you said it's bad to eat meat, and here you are eating a cheeseburger. What's, what's up? And I'm imagining Max saying, well, you know, I think it is true that it's morally bad to eat cheeseburgers, and I hope the society changes so that, the suffering of animals is reduced and nobody eats meat anymore. But, you know, why should I be first? I'm just an ordinary person. I'm paid to discover philosophical truths, like that it's bad to eat cheeseburgers, but I'm not paid to be a moral exemplar. You shouldn't expect me to be a saint, right? So I'm gonna enjoy my cheeseburgers just like everybody else is. And I can imagine the student being a little disappointed with that. It seems like there's something that's gone a little bit awry in that. Although it's hard to know exactly to me what's gone awry. I've been thinking about it and I've got various ideas, but I'm not totally settled on this yet. But one of my thoughts here is, you know, this Max seems so indifferent to the possibility of moral improvement, right? He's got this discovery. Let's just say that it's true, that it's bad to eat meat. He's got this discovery that he's made. Uh, he's got the whole history of 
world ethics laid out before him, which he can study and which he teaches about. And he doesn't use that in his personal life to kind of get any better. And maybe as I've portrayed him in this case, he's kind of not really even concerned about that. So for those kinds of reasons, I think we should be at least somewhat puzzled and somewhat disappointed that, you know, ethicists who are likely to say more likely than other groups to say that it's bad to eat meat and that you should give a lot to charity don't seem to be especially likely to avoid meat or especially likely to give lots to charity. You know, and you can raise similar issues about other kinds of issues. You know, people, Kantians who are who study honesty or Aristotelians who talk about the virtues of friendship, you know, they might not be especially more honest or especially better friends. And I think it's, it's just a little bit puzzling why that's the case. I don't think it's a, you know, I don't want to rebuke ethicists and I am to some extent an ethicist myself too strongly for this, but I do think that, that we sh that it's worth thinking about like what is that what exactly is going on here what's the role of ethics in the university what should be the role of studying ethics in your personal life what's the relationship between philosophical moral reflection and real world moral choice why does it seem to be um, so loose in so many cases yeah so that's the set of issues that i've been banging my head against now for you know 13 years yeah you talk a lot, too, in your work about uh, what you call moral mediocrity. So this is not being too bad or, or too good. And I wonder if this links up to um, ethicists who you expect to be much better than their average professors. Uh, maybe this is just an instance of moral professor or ethicists or moral philosophers being morally mediocre. Yes. Right. So... This is part of, I suspect, part of the explanation. And I came to the idea of moral mediocrity in part from thinking about these facts about ethicists. So the thesis that I call aiming for moral mediocrity is the idea that most people aim to be not morally good or bad by absolute standards, but instead about as morally good as their peers, right? Not especially better, not especially worse. So we can apply this to the cheeseburger ethicist case, right? So let's say Max discovers, we'll call it a discovery, that eating the meat of animals is bad. Now, if he's aiming for good or bad by absolute standards, then he should change his behavior. But if he's calibrating his behavioral choices by looking at his peers, well, his peers are still eating meat. So what would happen is, but if he's calibrating toward mediocrity relative to his peers, probably he'll still eat meat he won't change that because his peers aren't changing it. And maybe if his peers changed, he'd join. So what would, the result would be his behavior wouldn't change, but his opinion about his own behavior and every, most of the behavior of the people around him would get worse. So this idea that we aim for moral mediocrity instead of moral goodness or badness by absolute standards uh, kind of is one way, one tool we can use to try to explain what's going on with uh, ethicist behavior failing to change for the most part. This ties into, so the idea of moral mediocrity and not sort of living up to our moral ideals ties into another issue you work on, which is, or, or talked about, um, which is deathbed regrets. So I think a lot of people when they frame life choices think like, 
you know, I don't want to be on my deathbed and wish that I you know, would spend more time with my family and worked less or that I'd been nicer to my neighbors and friends and family. And, and, and this is taken to be some sort of weighty consideration that we're then supposed to use to influence how we live our lives, right? You sort of imagine yourself on your deathbed or you talk to someone on their deathbed or someone near to the end of their life, and then you assign a lot of weight to those considerations. Is that wrongheaded or is that maybe the right way to think about it? Yeah, I don't, I've always found it funny, this deathbed thing. I, um, you know, I can, I can feel the pull of it, right? Someone on their deathbed, you know, could be their last words. Those last words might seem to carry weight. They've got a synoptic view back on their whole life. They're kind of evaluating their life as a whole, maybe, you know, they give your, they give that advice. And I can see how that has a certain kind of pull to it. You know, and every year around graduation time, we hear these, you know, truisms about what people say on their deathbeds. They almost always say things like, you know, don't worry so much about money. Pursue your dreams. And I guess part of what I worry about here (laughs) is that, you know, like when grandpa's on that deathbed saying that, he doesn't have to live by that advice, right? It's risky to not think about money. And it's risky to pursue your dreams, right? Maybe you want to become a novelist, right? You're going to chuck the day job, become a novelist, pursue your dreams. That's risky. You know, grandpa can say that, and maybe he's got this fantasy, like, man, I wish I'd not worked at a bank and been a novelist instead. Why didn't I do that? And he's kind of imagining what his life could have been, and he's full of these kind of regrets, right? So he's like, yeah, no, my son, I'll make my, my grandson will be will be a great novelist. He should pursue his dreams. So you can kind of see that, but you know he he doesn't have to take that risk now. He's not he's not at the he's not going to be victimized by his own advice because he doesn't. It's too late, right? If a forty year old says pursue your dreams, don't worry about money, chuck the job at the bank to become a novelist, right? And then you say, well, but you're not doing that. <laughs> you know, the 40-year-old has got to live by their words, you might think, right? This connects with the ethicist stuff and maybe not living by their words, right? So when a 40-year-old says, don't worry too much about money, <laughs> pursue your dreams to a reasonable extent, right? I think that hesitation maybe partly comes because, you know, they they have a more, they're more invested in knowing that they would have to make to not be hypocritical they would have to live according to the advice that they're giving the other people so so yeah so i actually kind of like the advice of 40 year olds people in the middle of their lives a little better than the advice of uh, the kind of maybe somewhat regretful fantasy advice of people on their deathbeds i mean i do think you should pursue your dreams to a reasonable extent and not worry too much about money and Sometimes, you know, the undergraduates were often the recipients of this advice. Sometimes they're a little more financially and career oriented than would be ideal in my conception, you know, so it could be helpful advice in a certain way. But, but yeah, the cachet of what you say in your deathbed, yeah, I'm not sure it deserves uh, the rhetorical weight that we often give to it. Yeah, and there's another, um, so, so speaking of things that we often defer to, uh, it seems like I'm having a conversation with you on Zoom. It seems like it's a sunny day outside. Uh, but I could be mistaken about that. For all I know, I'm in the Matrix, right? I mean, I wouldn't. maybe it's yeah. a really well-designed Matrix. Maybe I'm being deceived by an evil demon like Descartes thought. 
Yeah. Uh, but it sure seems like I know what my thoughts are, my beliefs. Um, I know when I'm in pain or if I'm hungry. Uh, it seems like Descartes' view that, like, I know my mind way better than I know the external world. Doesn't that just seem right? I mean, how could you, how could you deny that, Eric? Yeah, I do deny that. <laughs> you know, it's a little complicated to defend, but let me give it a try. The first thing that I would want to do in defending that view is distinguish between knowing your own thoughts and knowing your own stream of experience, right? So there's something that is self-verifying perhaps in certain kinds of knowledge of your own thoughts. So if you say, I know that I'm thinking about a banana. Well, you know, in some sense, the thought that you're thinking about a banana contains within it the thought of a banana, right? So it kind of makes itself true. And, you know, there are various sentences that make themselves true. If I say, this sentence has five words, it's automatically true as soon as I say it, right? So it's self-verifying in that way. Right? So I think there, there are some kinds of assertions about your own mind that are self-verifying. Uh, just to cut in real quick, do you think something like um, feeling pain? Or I hum- don't think feeling pain is that. Okay. Right. So I think this. I think we should not take these self-verifying statements as typical or accurate, any more uh, typical of the condition of self-knowledge, any more than we take uh, this sentence has five words as an example of how you know <laughs> assertions in general are self-verifying. So yeah, so I want to bracket a certain and allow a certain set of uh, statements of self-knowledge that are self-verifying. And Descartes, I think and Descartes' I exist are probably two examples of that, right? So I don't disagree with Descartes that I know that I exist. (laughs) But then to leap from that to the general claim that you know your own mind better than you know the outside world, well, that's like leaping from, well, this sentence sentence has five words is automatically true to thinking all sentences are automatically true or something like that. So let's go toward a different type of conscious experience where I think a lot of people will uh, admit that we can be mistaken, and that's emotional experience, right? So the kind of paradigmatic example here is the man who's slamming the table red-faced, shouting, I am not angry! Of course he's angry. He doesn't realize that he's angry. He's invested in denying that he's angry. He's not carefully introspecting and reflecting and discovering what's going on in his mind. He's probably wrong about what his emotions are. And I would say that in my experience, usually, my wife, you know, I've been married for, what, 22 and a half years now. My wife reads my face better than I introspect. She knows often better what my mood and emotional state is just by seeing me and knowing me (laughs) than I do when when I'm reflecting myself, right? So like maybe I'm a little annoyed about being, you know, having my arm twisted into doing the dishes again. (laughs) You know, I don't think I'm annoyed. I'm like, oh yeah, no, I'm a good husband. I'm doing the dishes again. It's fine. She's like, you're annoyed. Even something like visual experience, right? So um, one of the things I think you know pretty well is the visually, visually available structures of the things around you right so you know this is an auditory interview so you can't see that i'm holding up a 
a cup that's got about a, a third, you know, it's a glass cup, it's got some coffee in it, right? By visual inspection, I can see all kinds of stuff about this, right? I can see that the cup is mostly clear, but a little, you know, a, a little dingy. It's got a handle over here that's shaped like this. It's about one third full of coffee. It's tilted like that. It's got this shape in its base. And all, I can, those all kinds of details that I know visually about this cup. Now think about my visual experience as I look at this cup. Well, one thing about visual experience is that when you look at one part of something, the other parts of that thing become less clear, right? And this isn't totally obvious to people, actually. It takes a little while for people to, I think, come to understand this about visual experience. But as you're moving your eyes around and you're, you're saccading, as psychologists say, the level of clarity changes, right? So actually your visual experience of the cup is this fluctuating thing where different parts are clear at different moments of time. There's also this wonderful debate, which I find fascinatingly puzzling, which you can see in the history of Western philosophy and psychology, about whether visual experience presents things as kind of flat projections, kind of like a picture, versus whether visual experience is in some more fundamental way, fundamental way three-dimensional, right? Is having visual experience kind of like looking at a TV or a picture? Or is it really more richly three-dimensional than that? And people disagree about that. You know, you might, your listeners might think it's obvious one way or another, but I just want to point out that if you actually look historically at the evidence, there's a lot of disagreement among philosophers and psychologists about, about how depth is experienced, whether, it's, whether things are experienced as though projected on a screen. So that aspect of the fluctuation as your eyes move around the object and that aspect of the experience of depth, those are two things that are actually, if you think about it, really big fundamental features of your visual experience that are not like super obvious that you could potentially get wrong, right? And they're, they're way less obvious than that the cup has a handle. <laughs> and you're way more likely to get them wrong than the cup has a handle even though they're not minor details, they're like about as big as you can get about the nature of visual experience, other than the mere fact that you are having a visual experience. So where we know our visual experience best is actually where we can lean crutch-like on our knowledge of the world around us, right? So I know that I'm having a visual experience of a handle-like shape, but that's not because I know my visual experience super well and infer from that to the handle-like shape. It's that I know that the cup, I know an outside fact. I know that the outside cup has a handle-like shape here. And then I infer inward, I must be having a visual experience of a cup-like shape. So it's exactly the opposite of Descartes, right? Descartes thought that we know first and best our experience of the world. And then we infer in, some, in sometimes an insecure way to how things are beyond our experience. What I want to say is it's almost the reverse, right? What you know first and best is there's a cup here, it looks like that, right? And then you reach, on the basis of that knowledge, you reach judgments about what your experience must be of that cup. Yeah, allow me to uh, engage in a little bit of evolutionary speculation. Sure. I wonder, and this is, I'm not a, I'm not a um, biologist or psychologist, but um, I wonder if perhaps the reason that is, we have a cognitive architecture, one would think, whose primary goal or, or one of the, one of its primary goals is to keep us alive 
allows to reproduce, find resources, mates, that sort of thing. It's much more important that I get the world right than I get the contents of my own head right. Now, of course, this is not to say the contents of my own head aren't important, but for the sake of avoiding predators, finding food, building a shelter, it's probably much better that I have a grip on reality, the outside world, than the contents of my own thoughts. Yes, I'm inclined to agree with that. I, right, as you prefaced it appropriately, <laughs> you know, that this is very speculative kind of evolutionary psychology uh, rather than rigorously defended. But there is some at least, you know, initial plausibility to the idea that human beings would be selected for excellent knowledge of middle, the middle-sized dry goods around them and knowledge of, say, their visual experience of those middle-sized dry goods might not, there might not be as much selection pressure on that. So, yeah, I'm inclined to think, right, and developmentally and socially, what do we care about? Right, people say that they care about whether they're happy. But people don't like really work on it. There are lots of ways you could work on making yourself happier. Right? You can read all kinds of self-help books. You can get engaged in meditation. You can study your own emotional experience day to day and see what causes you to have good emotional experiences and bad ones. I mean, if you really want it, if you really care most about being happy, there's all kinds of stuff you could do that almost nobody does. You tune into my show. <laughs> right. Listeners, I, see, I shouldn't. Right. Your listeners may be the rare exceptions to this. <laughs> right. Well, most people they don't think about their emotional experience very much. What they think about is stuff like, am I going to get the job? Uh, what does my wife think about what I just did? <laughs> right. Uh, you know, am I going to be embarrassed by this thing or is this thing that I just did socially inappropriate? Right. They think about, you know, can I afford this car? Right. They think about external things. That's what we as revealed through our choices, typically seem to care about a lot more than we care about our stream of experience. So yeah, right, so both plausibly evolutionarily and also with some plausibility in terms of our social development, we're not that interested in the stream of experience. So we don't attend to it very much. You tend much more to outside things than you do to your experience. We don't attend to it very much. We don't think about it very much. We don't have labels for it. Right, the experience of, say, saltiness, right? There's no separate word for the experience of saltiness than there is for, like, salt, right? The, the, the term for the experience is almost always derivative on the term for outside things, right? The experience of seeing a square, <laughs> the squarish kind of visual experience you might have looking at a square, well, it's named after the outside thing square, right? So we don't even have a vocabulary for talking about our student experience for the most part, that isn't just derivative on a prior vocabulary of the things that we talk about and think about and care about a lot more, which is the outside stuff. So we've been talking a little bit about uh, stream of consciousness, conscious experience, that sort of thing. Um, I'm aware of a laptop, as I'm talking to you on a laptop, and uh, the microphone sitting in front of me, my coffee cup. Uh, and I'm wondering whether or not my attending to something exhausts my conscious experience. Like I'm not aware that I'm wearing shoes until I attend to them or something. Right. Yeah. Or if like, does my experience sort of extend beyond what I am attending to in that particular moment? I think that is such a hard and interesting question. So 
most of your listeners will probably feel pretty confident that they know the answer to that question. When I ask undergraduates and other professors what they think about that question, some of them, they're almost all sure that it's obvious, but they give different answers. And it splits about 50-50. Some people think it's obvious that you have, say, constant tactile experience of your feet and your shoes, constant auditory experience of the hum of the refrigerator in the background, constant visual experience of the things in the, in the periphery of your visual field, even when you're not attending. I mean, they're not at the center of your experience, they're not especially vivid, but they're there in this kind of secondary, subtle way. Some people think it's kind of obviously true that that's the case. Um, and then others think it's obviously true that it's not the case, right? That you, you know, you haven't been thinking about your shoes all day, right? And so when you think about, ah, my feet, my shoes, right? Then, then you have this experience and you didn't have it before. Another wonderful example that gets different uh, intuitions from different people is the, the chiming clock tower, right? So you're walking across campus, the clock tower starts chiming noon. You're not paying any attention to it. You're thinking about something else. About four chimes in, you can kind of count back in your mind, ah, oh, yeah, it's been four chimes, right? Some people think that it's obvious that that shows that you had an experience of all four of those chimes in the periphery of your auditory experience as you were walking across campus. And others would say, no, you know, you're only noticing the chimes now and you're able to count back because there's some memory store, but you weren't experiencing them until you actually thought about it. So I think people have different intuitions about these cases. And then it's an empirical question on how do you settle a question like this? And it's a very difficult empirical question. And part of the reason it's difficult is that people on both sides have excellent reasons, excellent, excellent reasons to think that the people on the other side are mistaken. Whereas the people who think that experience is rich, full of details that you're not attending to, they can say, well, look, you know, of course you don't remember all those experiences of your feet and your shoes all day long, because you never attended to it, right? And you're not going to remember all these things you don't attend to. They're just going to drop out of your memory really fast, right? So you make a mistake that you mistake the lack of a memory of the experience for actually not ever having, having had the experience in the first place. It's like those people who wake up and say, oh, I didn't have any dreams, right? They're wrong, right? They had dreams. Almost everybody has dreams, right? Right? They just don't remember them, right? So they think they didn't have them. So you don't remember your experience in your, of your feet and your shoes. So you think you didn't have it, but that's wrong. Right? So people who favor what I call abundant views of experience. We've got lots of experience in all these modalities all the time, right? They can say that about people's intuitions. And it's very difficult scientifically. We don't have a good theory of consciousness that will allow us to say, oh yeah, well, the brain reading proves, right? It's still, our theories of consciousness are still fundamentally based on people's reports. So we don't really have a way to say for sure, oh yes, that thing, it was registered in a certain way, you know, it's been, it gets in through the peripheral nervous system, right? But did it get far enough in to register in consciousness? We can't answer that easily. Then people on the other side, the people who think experience is sparse, right? Who think you basically only experience what you attend to. Maybe attention can spread a bit, right? So you might be able to have, in those moments when you're, you can maybe attend to your whole visuals field and maybe a few other things, all at once, you can spread your attention across a large range. So it doesn't have to be always totally narrow. 
For those who think that experience is basically limited to what's in attention or near, near to that, and you don't basically have any experience of your feet and your shoes most of the day, they can say that what's going on with people who think you have abundant experience is what's sometimes called the refrigerator light error. Right, so imagine a four-year-old opens the refrigerator, the light's on. They're like, hmm, I wonder if the light's always on. They close the refrigerator. They open it up again really fast. Oh, the light's still on. They close it, right? Of course, they then mistakenly conclude, oh, the refrigerator light is always on, right? Because it's always on when they think to check, but it doesn't follow from that that it's not on when they're not checking, right? So likewise, whenever you think about whether you're having experience of your feet and your shoes, you're like, yep, I'm having experience of my feet and my shoes now. And then you wait, you know, a few hours later, you're like, Hmm, I wonder if I have experience in my feet. And she says, oh, yes, I am. Because as soon as you think about it, you create that experience. So, right, and I think that's a perfectly excellent objection to relying on people's intuitions, people who are on the abundance side, that, that they do have constant experience of their feet and their shoes and such. So the problem is we've got people with different intuitions on both sides of this. We've got excellent arguments on both sides for being skeptical about people's intuitions on the opposite side. And we don't have a sufficiently developed neuroscience or psychology of consciousness to answer this question in a non-question begging way. So I think we don't actually know. And it's gonna be very difficult to find out whether you have this rich stream of experience or whether your experience is actually fairly narrow. And if you think about it, that's like kind of an amazing thing to be ignorant of because I mean, this is one of the most fundamental and you might think kind of seemingly obvious facts about the stream of experience, right? How can we know so much about the first second of the Big Bang, which is so far away, it's so hard to access, and so, you know, dependent on theory to, to get us there, and not know, but I think we don't know, and not know, like, really basic fundamental facts about our own stream of experience. I think that's just kind of like amazing what's nearby what's like there in our face sometimes it's so hard to see you know on a quick aside that that actually ties in nicely with your point earlier that you think descartes has things exactly backwards right that in a lot of ways we know the external world much better than we know the internal world yeah but going back Absolutely. to this going back to the sparse versus abundant view of conscious experience versus attention uh, I'm, a, I'm a relative newcomer to this, so allow me to ask a naive question. Uh, shouldn't there be a presumption in favor of the sparse view? I mean, if we think, for example, that like brain matter, attention, experience, these things are all very costly, right? So I'm not necessarily making a, an evolutionary appeal. I mean, it could just be, um, you know, for reasons of, of parsimony or costliness or you know, the economics of calories, whatever you want to call it, that why have experience that extends beyond our attention if it's not going to get filed away in memory? Like it doesn't, it's not really doing much. Why, why have it? Shouldn't the burden be on the abundant view that like, why should you think without good reason that experience extends beyond attention? Yes. I'm not sure experience is costly. Right, I guess that's the, the presupposition behind the question that I would challenge. Um, right, of course, you know, if you want to go way toward the non-costly side, <laughs> there are panpsychists, right? This is a, a, a position that's got increasing attention in philosophy and psychology and neuroscience these days, right? The idea that maybe literally everything has consciousness or 
near panpsychism, you know, maybe even very simple systems have consciousness. So everywhere there's information processing, you get kind of consciousness for free. So, you know, I'm not a panpsychist. I don't 100% totally rule it out. I think one of the wonderful things about studying consciousness and studying the world is there are all these kinds of weird possibilities you can't totally rule out, right? <laughs> so, you know, I don't totally rule out panpsychism. I'm not especially attracted to it. But there are a bunch of abundant views, right? On which, well, once you got a brain, once you got sensory processing, you know, consciousness kind of comes along as a free rider with that. So if you've got, you know, you've got a brain the size of a lizard or the size of a garden snail even, maybe you just kind of get consciousness for free and you don't need all the resources of attention to get it. So I'm not saying that's right. I'm not saying that's wrong, but I think that's not implausible. Uh, and so that would be one way in which someone might say, well, look, the burden of proof might not be as, uh, might not be on the side of the, of the sparse. And relating to uh, attention, um, I, I was reading your theory of jerks um, the other day and came across your entry on forgetting. Mm. So I have an anniversary, let's suppose, and I, with my, you know, fiance or my, my girlfriend or my, my spouse, and I forget, right? Or, or I have, you know, I forget to send my mom a card for her birthday. And I say, well, you know, I'm, I'm a nerd. I'm an academically inclined guy, right? I just forget <laughs> these kinds of things. Like they matter to me, but you know, I'm just not wired that way. Yeah. That, like maybe wrong or like, is that maybe an unwitting confession of what I really care about? Yeah, I think it kind of is. You know, I don't want to be an absolute extremist about this. <laughs> But I think your forgetting reveals a lot about you, right? So you might say, hey, it's not my fault. I forgot my anniversary, <laughs> right? But, you know, in a way, Angela Smith argues for this too, right? In a way, the fact that you forgot says something about your priorities and what types of things come to your mind, what types of things don't come to your mind. So I think, you know, it's not like it's totally out of your control and you're blameworthy and you're completely... Uh, and there's no blameworthiness that attaches to forgetting. Another example that I use, you know, which was in my book, is the example of Eichmann, the notorious Nazi, right? So he's being interviewed in Jerusalem in, his, in the early 60s when he's been caught for trial. And they're asking him about his life, and he remembers all these details, like, that have to do with his social successes, right? So he got to hang out with uh, Reinhard Heydrich, this high-ranking Nazi, and he got to watch him drink and smoke. And he remembers all of those kind of social details. Shipping thousands of Jews off to their death, he's like, ah, forget that stuff. <laughs> right? It's like, yeah, well, we know what he cared about. <laughs> he cared about, like, being able to hang out with high-ranking Nazis, and he didn't give a crap about, you know, what happened to the Jews, right? And his forgetting reveals that. So, yeah, and I, like you, I'm kind of nerdy. I remember the details of these little philosophical arguments, and I forget the names of the parents of my daughter's friends. You know, I meet them time and time again. I'm like, oh, yeah, who's that? Right? Like, you know, that reveals something about my values, which, you know, maybe maybe I wish I cared more about, about those people. Probably should. But, um, yeah, I know, I think... Uh, often our forgetting is an unwitting confession of what our values are. Not 100% of the time, not perfectly, but like maybe more than we're totally comfortable admitting. Uh, so is there anything that you're uh, currently working on that you're psyched about or excited about? Sure, yeah, a couple things. 
Right. So um, one of them is, you know, I've been writing a lot of science fiction uh, recently and studying science fiction. And I've got this anthology that's going to be coming out with uh, Helen DeCruz and Johan DeSmet called Philosophy Through Science Fiction Stories. This is going to be awesome. We've got some great stories. So we've got some professional science fiction writers, some of the very best prize-winning science fiction writers to contribute to this anthology, some of their new, previously unpublished, philosophically interesting science fiction work. And we got some professional philosophers who have published science fiction in the past to write new stories for this anthology. So this anthology is it's mostly new stories, there are a couple reprints, mostly new stories written by both philosophers and science fiction authors. Um, yeah, so I think this will be fun. I've been thinking a lot about how to connect science fiction and philosophy better together because I think that science fiction is a great way of thinking through philosophical issues about utopia, about personal identity, about the meaning of life, all kinds of stuff can be thought through fictionally in speculative fiction. Uh, and philosophers don't do that enough and don't appreciate the value of doing that enough and don't do enough reading, I think, of some of the interesting work of science fiction authors on these issues. So I'm excited about that. That anthology will be coming out hopefully later this year or maybe very early next year. And then the other thing, if I can mention two things, I've got a book proposal that I've got some contract offers on and I've got to decide, I'm not sure which press is going to come out with, uh, but the, uh, it's, the working title is The Weirdness of the World. And I'm going to be bringing together a bunch of stuff that I've done in metaphysics and epistemology and philosophy of mind uh, under the idea that the world is full of bizarre possibilities that we can't totally rule out. And that's kind of one of the wonderful and amazing things about the world. Right. I mentioned one briefly in uh, our discussion, right, which is panpsychism. You mentioned the idea that we might be living in a simulation of the matrix or whatever. Right. All of these things, I think, are pretty unlikely, but I don't think they're completely negligible possibilities. And I think that reflecting on these relatively less likely, not completely negligible possibilities is interesting. In the world, probably some weird things, maybe not those two, but it's almost certain, I think, that our common sense sense of the world is deficient. And there are some things that are radically bizarre that are true of the world. I mean, we already see this to some extent in physics, right? With quantum mechanics and, and relativity theory. But I think this is probably also philosophically true in connection with issues about the fundamental nature of the universe and in connection with issues about consciousness. So yeah, so bringing this together into this into this book on the weirdness of the world is something I'm really looking for. Yeah, that sounds very exciting, actually. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, for those who want to follow up, is there any place they should go to find more about you, your work, that kind of thing? Yeah, well, I have an academic blog, or an academic website uh, at uh, UC Riverside, right? So they can, they just Google Schwitzgable. <laughs> Even if you misspell it, you'll probably get it right. It'll come up. And then I also have this blog, as you know, uh, The Splintered Mind, uh, where I post usually about once a week various reflections about philosophy and psychology and sometimes science fiction. And also your uh, recently released book, uh, A Theory of Jerks and Other Philosophical Misadventures. Uh, it's actually ah, yes. a very good read. Um, oh, thank those, you. Thank you. For those who even aren't uh, philosophers or haven't even taken a philosophy class, I think there's a lot in there uh, to enjoy and digest. Yes, thank you. Uh, I tried to write it so that it would be of interest both to professional philosophers and to people who uh, don't know much philosophy. 
uh, as long as they're intellectually interested in the kinds of issues that we've been talking about, I, I think they would find it uh, accessible and interesting. Uh, and my blog is targeted in the same kind of way for uh, toward people of a broad range. I mean, actually, to me, it's really important. I think when philosophers only craft their words and ideas for other philosophers, I think that's actually usually, not always, a kind of bad intellectual habit. Um, taking your ideas and being able to show for a broader range of people how they work, what's interesting in them, forces you to break out of the sub-disciplinary presuppositions that you might be stuck in, forces you to be clear about things that you might not otherwise be clear about, forces you to face the potential criticism of people from a wide range of backgrounds instead of just your usual interlocutors. So I actually think it's important as a philosopher to be as accessible as you can be uh, to a broad range of people. So that's really important to me. So I do try to, to reflect that in uh, most of my work, uh, especially the stuff that appears in, in the blog and in my books. Yeah, just on a parting note, if I could add to that, um, I think when, you know, so I'm coming, I, I just graduated, you know, with a doctorate in philosophy myself. I know how this sort of thing goes. And I find that if you just talk to a very subset, very small subset of people who are like-minded, um, not only do you lose out, I think, on a big, bigger audience and a bigger conversation, uh, not that there's not a place for specialized work, there is, but you lose out on a much larger audience. But I also think you sort of sever the connection we have with the history of philosophy. Um, I mean, to put the point sort of glibly, Socrates wasn't in a graduate school program. Or, you know, he didn't go to graduate school. He didn't get a doctorate in philosophy. Um, he was talking to, to folks. And I think um, professional philosophers, sometimes, though not always, um, miss out on conversations with people. Um, and there's a lot of folks, I think, who have um, philosophical bones, so to speak, or, or have philosophical questions they've pondered and thought about, but haven't really know, don't really know what to do with them or how to pursue them. Yeah. Um, so I, I really think that's great. Uh, adding, you know, taking philosophy and moving into to science fiction, I think is a really great, a really fruitful way of doing that. Um, I think there's some people doing uh, like illustrated um, like books, uh, like books yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's definitely a lot of uh, there's definitely a lot of uh, avenues for that. But um, with that, uh, wrapping things up. Thank you for coming on the show, Eric. It was really great talking to you. Yeah, it was good talking with you. Thank you for having me. <laughs>